uh, your prehab needs to have a purpose. So your prehab should be specifically for something. For example, if you know that you have, when you're cold, your end range shoulder flexion is about 170, but when you're warm, your end range shoulder flexion is about, is about 180 and you need that range, that 180 range, then your prehab exercises should reflect that, right? It should, it should put you into shoulder flexion and get you up to 180. And the moment you get there, that's when you should start doing your sport. So it's not, it's not time dependent, it's just outcome dependent. I'm Danny Lucchini, and this is the Merakai Performance Podcast. Welcome to episode one of the Merakai Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have Philip Liao, or Phil, as he's easier to refer to. And Phil is a good friend of mine. He's a colleague. He has been a coach and he has been a client. So we have quite a diverse relationship. So I was really happy to get him on for this first episode. Phil is a weightlifting coach, a personal trainer, and a physiotherapist, uh, although he's no longer practicing, as we'll go into during the show today. He's competed at the Commonwealth Games as a weightlifter. So he's sort of been there and done that as an athlete too, which is something that I always talk about as being really important for a coach. You need to have experienced or understand the training that you're putting your clients through to truly be able to empathize with how they're feeling and be able to understand the feedback they're giving you on whether or not it's sort of them just being trying to take the easy road or if it's something that they might genuinely be going through. And this allows us to alter the way that we coach in a way that's going to benefit them. So I think that's something really important. Uh, he's the coach of his own weightlifting club now, which is called Core Weightlifting, and they've recently been hitting some, some great numbers, and they seem to be making some really great progress. He's also one of the owners of the M3 Initiative, which is something I am also part of uh, as an employee, um, which is a, it's a personal training education company that works on delivering and improving the standards of personal trainers. There's also specific lifting courses as well, which uh, is called the Barbell Curriculum. And I think this is really important for specifically students who uh, are leaving university and they need to be really versed in how to teach exercise. Uh, as we go into today's episode, especially with like physiotherapy and things like that, they're leaving the industry and the physiotherapy-based method potentially is having a lot of holes where it's missing a lot of the beneficial stuff that we have from sports science. So Phil will go into that today and how his practice and his uh, therapy has always been guided more by the sports science and he has now taken that into his coaching and his personal training. Phil is a young, hungry coach who is doing really great work as both a coach and an educator. He is truly widely versed in, with his knowledge base combining sports science, rehab and performance into his coaching. And one of the things that really impresses me about the way he works is he takes a very holistic approach. And this is something that we will dive into today. And that's talking about the importance of sleep, the importance of understanding social settings, uh, the psychology of your individual clients, and the difference that can make when it comes to trying to produce not just a high-performance athlete, but just your general uh, client as well. And these are really important skills and really important information that you can take with you today to improve your practice straight away. If we just put a little bit of thought and a little bit of critical thinking into what we do. We cover a wide range of topics today. And that include what it takes to be a high-performance athlete and what it takes to coach a high-performance athlete. Having an understanding of both is really beneficial. We talk about some current issues with the disconnect between physiotherapy and performance 
and look at some practical ways in which we can overcome that. And a lot of that does seem to be a bit of a merging of roles. We look at the role of critical thinking in coaching, uh, which is helping to blend the rehab general principles and performance principles together, applying your own critical thinking to that and coming out with the result that is the program. We talk about the role of individualization within a principle-based system, the current use of and role of manual therapy, which is something I've been quite vocal about in the past, and I've sort of pulled back my opinions uh, as we'll go into today, you'll hear why. Uh, there's both positives and negatives for the use of them. Uh, we talk about what evidence-based really means and what it means to be an evidence-based coach and how to use that to your advantage and to your client's advantage and not just for the sake of saying that you're evidence-based. We talk about looking at the physical, social, and psychological aspects and how we would assess that and also combine that with a uh, performance assessment that can be used with your weightlifters, something that you can really take away with you today. We talk about the practical implementations of prehab, and you would have heard that in the teaser at the start, but prehab is something that should be used for a specific reason, not just for the sake of it, not just because the ankle is used in a squat. It doesn't mean we need to prep the ankle if that ankle doesn't need the prepping. And we look at, most importantly, the importance of sleep and the importance of not always smashing your athletes when it comes to reducing the overall injury risk uh, of, you know, out there. It seems to be an epidemic now. Everybody's getting injured. Athletes are required to do so much more. And it's our role as coaches to help dictate the way that they're training in a way that's going to make sure that we at least mitigate the risk of injuries uh, as much as we can because that is one of the keys to having a high-performing athlete. If they're injured, they can't perform. There is some real gold in this episode, and anyone who works in the training world will benefit from hearing this episode. It'll force you to think beyond the research and beyond the systems you're a part of. So without any further ado, let's dive into the episode and introduce Phil. All right, Phil, welcome to the Merakai Performance Podcast. Uh, really glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. All right, let's jump straight into it. So uh, I understand, obviously, that you are an athlete as well. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your athletic history before we get into the, the more rehab and physio work? Uh, sure. So I, I think I've been called an athlete more than I've ever called myself an athlete. I reckon I called myself an athlete once in my life. And that was when I was in Cambodia. Um, cause I wasn't drinking much and they said, why aren't you drinking? And I said, it's hard to not sound like a cock without saying this, this way, but I am kind of an athlete. And they looked at me and just went, Oh, okay. And they had that look like this guy so up himself. So then that's the first and last time I ever called myself an athlete. Anyway, what do I do? Uh, athletic, sorry, that's just an anecdotal tangent I thought you'd appreciate. By you, I mean the person listening, not you, Dan. Yes, um, the, athletic, the athletic endeavor that I do is Olympic weightlifting. I've been doing it for uh, maybe my seventh or eighth year now. I don't really remember. But I started as a hobby, really. Like I think most, most people who start a sport late in their teens started as a hobby. Um, and it turns out that I was actually pretty good at it. And I just kept going until I started taking it seriously about maybe two or three years in. And then that just changed my whole lifestyle to accommodate the sport. And at the peak of my sporting career so far, I made the Commonwealth Games in 2018 and also the World Universe World University Games in 2017. Right, so clearly a very humble athlete. Um, 
don't like talking about it too much, but there's some really amazing achievements. And uh, one thing that I always like to talk about is you need to walk the walk. Uh, so how do you think that being an athlete yourself sort of benefits you as a trainer and, and a clinical practitioner as well? Uh, as a trainer, I think as a trainer, it it's a lot easier to relate to people who are interested in high performance. I don't think many people, unless you've done it yourself, understand what it actually means to be in high performance because high performance isn't just about training hard. That's only maybe 30% of the story. High performance is a complete lifestyle where everything you do is conducive towards performing at your best. And that includes training, that includes sleep, that includes eating, that includes your work. Everything is governed by yourself in a way that the only thing that matters is your athletic pursuit. So when I have people come to me and they say stuff like, I want to make a high level, I want to make the Com Games, or I want to make nationals, I'm more critical of what they're about to tell me because I know what it takes to get there. And unless you've proven in your past or you've proven through your actions that you can adhere to a high performance lifestyle, then some people just, they're just not made for it. And that's, this is not even taking into account their athletic ability. It's purely just their decisions and choices around where their priorities are. And that's, that's just as a trainer. Uh, and second, what was the second one? Second part as a, as a clinician. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, as a clinician, you can't tell someone who's hell bent on a goal that they should stop training in the, in the benefit of having to rehab, for example, because one, you actually don't know whether that's going to happen. So you can get someone to, to stop training for a bit and do all these rehab and they could maybe be pain-free after eight weeks. Great. But the moment they start training again, they have an injury, the, the same thing comes back and you can't really guarantee that. So a lot of it is about damage control, depending on how far out they are from competition, obviously, but a lot of it is about damage control. So with myself anyway, I kind of, I, I monitor my own workloads because I do have existing injuries. And during times where, during times where I'm out of competition for a good three or four months, I'll spend time working on movements that are very, very, very close to what I'm avoiding. And also a lot of accessory, a lot of accessory work, but I'll never tell them to, I'll never stop. Same yeah. thing with out of season, any out of season athlete, never stop. Just keep doing something. Even if it's very 50% of what you used to be doing, you have to keep doing something. Um, and then the, the other part is just understanding that when it comes to competition time, if you've worked your whole life for that one moment of making a team or winning a medal, it doesn't matter. You don't care whether you're hurting, your knees hurt, you're going to dislocate your elbow, your shoulder's hurting. It doesn't matter. You're still going to go out there and give everything you have because you've worked too hard. So 
I, mean, I can empathize. I can empathize with people who, who are called crazy when they compete on injury. But to me, it's not crazy. To me, it's the only thing that makes sense. What's crazy is if you work 10 years for something and then ditch it because you're hurt. That's crazy. That's stupid to me. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's about that empathy and, and what you can sort of translate to, to your client. And they're going to they're gonna receive it a lot better because they know that you've been there. If someone who hasn't been there tells them to do the work, it's, it's a lot harder to take that on. Um, and yeah, you brought up a couple of really good points there that I do want to come back to with the workloads and the sort of working through the pain and the injury. Um, but just before, just to give everyone a bit of history so we can sort of know where you've come from, do you want to take oh, yeah. us through your career progression um, and how you've now come into a position where you're able to blend your physiotherapy work and the rehab work with just general training and weightlifting coaching? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. You're making me think. Hmm. So I would say that uh, I didn't really have this career path in mind when I finished high school. My first, my first year of university was actually in commerce and arts. Because I thought I, well, commerce was just the thing you did because everyone around me, predominantly the Asian background, were getting into business, law, medicine, accounting and all, all those, all those uh, stereotypical subjects, which are true, by the way. Um, and I just thought, commerce, maybe I'll do commerce, commerce and arts. And I chose arts because I thought I can speak Chinese, I'll go and learn Chinese, and then maybe they'll send me over to China because I think that country's going to boom. And I was right. Who, who knew? 17-year-old me had a bit of economic sense. Anyway, uh, I didn't really like it. I hated it, in, in fact, especially the accounting part. Um, and at the time... I was already training. I'd already been training for about five years since I was 13 with dumbbells, bodyweight work, chin-ups every day, pull-ups every day. Um, and I'd, I'd always had this interest and I'd love talking about it. So my girlfriend at the time told me, maybe you should look into one more of the health sciences because that seems to be where you spend your spare time um, and see, what, see how you go. So with that, I decided to maybe try and get into physio which I didn't upon first try, I got into sports science instead. And it was a blessing in disguise because now I, I would say that the sports science principles dictate a lot of how I approach my physiotherapy, more so than what I've learned in physiotherapy um, itself. So then I started my, my journey into health science and I became a PT in my second year of sports science. Started training people, learning about people, but the main struggle for me there, which, which I'll come back to later, the main struggle for me there was that there didn't seem to be a cohesion between what I was being taught at sports science, what was being said to me by the client via Google, Dr. Google and stuff they see on the internet. And what I've also been told by physios so there's this disconnect. I, I had this base knowledge of exercise science, but when I talked about exercise science to physios, it was unclear. And when I spoke about exercise science to clients, it was also unclear. So then I had further study in physio. And I, rem I remember sitting in the lecture hall and I thought uh, the, the lecture itself was run by a physio who was talking about loading principles. And it went something like this. Three reps is high intensity strength, five reps is high intensity, moderate strength, and 10 reps is endurance, 15 reps is 
is X, Y, and Z. You know that 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 generic uh, that generic slide. And so I, I remember sitting there thinking, hold on a second, exercise science has basically come out and said that a lot of these rep ranges are arbitrary as long as the effort is matched. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. I, I don't think we can, we can blanket statement anything. Uh, you can have power situations, which are much higher rep, uh, mm. just not being that maximal, maximal power output. Sure, but you have maximal out, power output over a 10 rep range instead of a three rep. Yeah. Right. yeah exactly so then i asked the question i put my hand up and i said excuse me uh you said a 5rm and a 10rm are different because the 10rm is more hypertrophy and the 5rm is more power so i put my hand up and i i asked and i said but if you're doing repetition maximums on both you're still working to absolute failure so aren't the effects similar and the answer that came back to me was just uh no 10 is hypertrophy and 5 is strength and that was it. This was in the lecture hall in front of about 200 students. And that's when I realized even they don't know, even the, some of the physios don't know about this. And that's, that's what kickstarted this idea in my head that I think in order to be a great practitioner in any sports science or physio, you kind of need to understand both. Maybe not to the extent that you need the degree, but you still need to have bits and pieces so you kind of have, you, you need a cohesive picture of exactly what you're looking at in terms of movement. So then I finished my degree um, and I started working in, in the practice as a physio. And I just saw that there was this constant underloading of patients, just constant patients who were weak, who were overweight, who just didn't move. And on the flip side, so on the, on the weekdays, I'd be a physio. On the weekends, I'd be a PT. And these guys, I brought them from maybe having a bit of pain to pain-free. They're training, they're loading, they're healthy, they're happy with everything. On the one hand, I'm doing this manual therapy base that doesn't seem to get the outcome that I want. And on the, on the weekends, I'm doing this active approach that is incorporating physiotherapy principles. And these guys just don't seem to get any worse. In fact, they actually get better. So I don't know when it was, but one day I just realized, why did I ditch my exercise science and active approach mindset when I became a physio? Because the environment is, you do manual therapy, people come in, you give them a release, whatever it is, and then you get them back potentially for a few days and, that, and, then, and then you progress the rehab from there. So then I just started doing exactly what I did for patients that I would do for my physiotherapy, uh, my, my PT clients. And the results were much better than me getting hands-on for most of them. And then so eventually that led me to thinking that, you know what, I'm not a physio because I'm not exactly a physio because I deviate from some of the traditional practices, which would be, manual therapy, progressing through rehab. Um, whereas I'm not exactly just a PT slash sports, sports scientist because I'm very aware of joint mechanics and how they work in from a physiotherapy lens. Um, and I'm not exactly just a weightlifting coach because when I program and when I teach technique, I'm looking at joint angles and I'm looking at loading. I'm looking at everything that a physio and sports scientist would look at. So then I kind of extrapolated myself from that environment and just thought, I don't know what to call myself as a profession, but all I know is that 
movement is a spectrum. And right now I can help people in the rehab zone, normal zone and in the performance zone. And that's it. And that's where I, that's where I am today. I, I'm a weightlifting coach predominantly now and the PT, but it's not, it's not separate. Everything I do, advice I give, exercises I give are with the mindset of a physio, sports scientist and weightlifting coach. That's really great. It's, so when you say you, you come from more of a sports science approach into physio, that you're, you're talking specifically about more load-based uh, protocols, right? Yep. Load-based protocols, uh, strength, strength stuff. Yeah. 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 And I think it's something that we, we kind of forget a lot of the time. People go into a rehab setting and then they come out and go into a strength training setting. But we miss that blend and, and the important of how, importance of how we can flow from the rehab straight back into performance. And there should be realistically an increase in performance because we've been able to uh, sort of work on whatever that individual factor was that may have been the limiting factor or the one that was causing the injury in the first place. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's, a, that's a level of um, understanding that I think is very advanced. And my personal opinion is you, as a rehab specialist, I guess, you really do need to understand whatever you're trying to rehab very, very well. So let's, let's take weightlifting, for example. If you're rehabbing someone with tendinopathy in, in, in the patella and they're a weightlifter, if you've never seen weightlifting at all, you don't know what the sport is about, it's very hard for you to even approach the loading protocol of that person because you're not even aware of what those movements are. You're not aware of the stretch shorten cycle in the, in the clean and snatch. You're not aware of the positions, the degree of knee flexion that these people are in. So the, the evidence we have for that is isometrics are going to help you. And then you eventually move it to plyometrics, all that stuff. And that's great. They're principle based, but then you can't apply the principle to something practical. You don't even know what the practical part of that is. Yeah, exactly. And it, exactly. Right? So then you, you, exactly. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, I, it's, it's, it's something that I've spoken about with other EPs and our, our friend Nick as well. Nick Strength Shared Modalia. Wolfpack now, I think. Anyway, what I said to him before was he's an EP and I, I think that at some stage, everything's going to blend. I reckon physio, SNC, EP, sports science, P, maybe even PTs, everything's going to blend together and it's going to form a new profession because that's just what's needed. People are, are too cluey now. There are too many physios. There are too many EPs, too many sports scientists. The, the person and the people who are willing to incorporate all three are the ones who are going to stand out. Yeah. And if we're, if we're too busy trying to compartmentalize everything, there's too many uh, fusions and too many parts that blend between them that get missed. And I see this yep. sort of happening across uh, like in the sporting world as well. So when I was working uh, in the NRL, we obviously had our physios and there was a strength coach and there was a conditioning coach. And they were, we were lucky that we had some really great physios there who did have a decent understanding. But even as I was leaving, all of a sudden a new role came up was a rehab specialist and they were meant to be kind of that link. But realistically, teams are going to look at that and people are going to look at that and go, well, I could just train my physio or train my strength conditioning coach to be able to fill that role as well. And it's really important to be progressive as a coach moving forward and developing your skills across different spectrums, right? Yeah. Yeah. You need, you need the fundamentals of everything. You, you really do. And I, I think that 
a lot of it, look, a lot of the exercise sports science degree was to me really boring, but the ones that were important, I still use to this day. Uh, same thing with physio, same thing with what I've learned in weightlifting. Um, and re it, it really is about specialize, not specialization, but being aware of the spectrum of things that can, that, that can af affect what you prescribe to your, to your, to your athletes or clients or patients, whoever they may be. Yeah. Uh, going back to that. So obviously there is a spectrum and we talked about using more sports science sort of approaches for your physiotherapy work. What is your opinion on the use of manual therapy in current practice and perhaps, you know, in a, how could it be used in a better way? Uh, manual therapy is, I think, a, a way of, it's about, it's, it's, look, it can be many things. It can be a diagnostic tool. It can be, uh, uh, energy, analgesic, it, but it, it really ever is the answer for actual rehab. So if you want to, if you want to get someone stronger, doing manual therapy on them, probably isn't going to get them stronger. That's not to say that there is a place for manual therapy. For example, someone who's got really severe acute neck pain, back pain, all these things. It, 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 it does get them to calm down. It does get them to feel better. So there, is use, there are uses there, except I think in clinical practice and potentially I'm, I'm saying something that people are blind to and other physios are aware of, but not willing to speak about, is that um, sometimes the, the manual therapy is used as a way of re, retaining clients. And I, I think that there's no shame in me saying that. I think there's plenty of clinics out there who have very clear KPIs for their physios, right? Something like two visits per week per consult for the first three three or four weeks, something like that. And from, from one perspective, I get it. It's, it's a business at the end of the day and you do need to thrive. If your business doesn't thrive, the people you employ don't thrive, your family doesn't eat, all that stuff. And I, I, I'm very understanding of that. At the same time, the people who lose out are the, are the, are the patients because they're not getting that full transparent treatment that should be characteristic of healthcare. So sometimes, you know, manual therapy has a lot of it. Like, let's just say dry needling, for example. I believe last I checked that the effects last for about 48 hours, roughly. And in that time, you're meant to do all your rehab. And, and that's great. I think it's, it's good in that context. But, I mean, you don't really need to be needling someone three times a week. And it's done. You don't really need to do that. Because after the first 48 hours, you're just doing the same thing, right? Same thing with releasing people, giving people really deep tissue, uh, deep tissue massages. The long-term outcomes that we have within the physiotherapy world is it's no different from just active recovery, I believe. So, I mean, as evidence-based practice and evidence-based practice profession, how do we justify that, right? How do you justify constantly doing manual therapy? At the same time, on, on, on the other end of the coin is uh, the people who use the evidence that long-term manual therapy is no better than active recovery. And they say that now nah, everything should just be active. 
It's not, that's not really what the evidence is saying. The evidence is saying there's no difference. So whether you do one or you do the other, it's still, you potentially might get to the same outcome. So there are people who really do just want a, a release or a, or a needle because it makes them feel better. And placebo is a real thing. So if that's what you know your client or patient needs in order for them to stay adherent to their exercises, then that potentially is something that you'll have to do. Yeah, I think that's something that's really under-acknowledged. It's sure, the evidence might say this, but the individual is allowed to feel good and allowed to find ways that make them feel good because that's very likely going to lead to positive outcomes. As long as you are combining it with things that you know are going to be beneficial as well from more of an active standpoint, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a blend, right? And that's probably the art of rehab as well. How do you read the person in front of you so that you don't have to... You don't have to lie to them in any means, but also give them the treatment that they need. Because look, some, look, evidence is constantly evolving and the quality is always evolving. But an example I like to give to people who always just go back to evidence is at one stage, um, exercise was seen as useless to combat osteoporosis at one stage. And I believe this was like 20, 30 years ago. There were actual papers that showed that exercise was not very useful for decreasing the rate of bone mineral density loss, which as you would know, completely contradicts what we have now because bone increases turnover when you have high loading. So then you look at the evidence and, it, and you look at what exactly they meant by exercise. And if you dissect it back then, exercise was something like 15 minutes of walking or, or pool work or just, uh, stepping on stepping classes, stuff like that. And they were all grouped into exercise. So then of course the effect size was going to be very minimal because the exercise they were doing was actually not very useful for in, uh, retaining bone mineral density. So you can't just always look at the evidence and cite the evidence because some papers are not produced in a way that would give the outcome that's needed. And you can't just throw it in the bin because you think that that's how it, uh, you think that that result shows you everything. You have to read it. You have to dissect it yourself and think for yourself based off what you know, what you know of other, other, other professions and then come to your own conclusions. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the most important thing. We talk about being evidence-based and following this, but evidence-based only exists after we get the results that make us look for the evidence to start with. The greatest evidence yeah, exactly. you have is the positive result in front of you. Whether or not it goes with you know, certain research, we need to look at the context in which that was taken. We can look at one of the most sort of traditional things, myths, I guess, within uh, strength conditioning is the knees over toes rule. Yeah, yeah, it does increase load. But it's within context, is that a good or a bad thing? So yeah. evidence-based is, is you need to be evidence-based only as much as you need to be evidence-based, I think. Yeah, well, it's, uh, they always say that it's a guideline. It really is a guideline and it should be used as such because you, not everyone's going to fit into the guidelines. For example, ACSM, ACSM guidelines. They, they're well-researched and one of their recommendations, I believe, for losing weight is, what, 250 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise, yeah, like cardiovascular for losing weight. That's the, that's the ACSM guideline. 250 minutes a week is a lot for a lot of people who are working full-time hours and with a kid. That's what four hours and a bit 
Yeah, just over four hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is where people need to understand that this is a guide. Potentially, that's never going to be achievable for someone who's busy. They're never going to be able to get there. And that's where when you as a coach or you as a clinician need to think outside the box and get creative and do the best that you can with the evidence that you do know to make sure that the person in front of you gets the best plan that suits them. Not, not, not the evidence. It's what suits them, not what you, you can do to suit the evidence. Yeah. It's an application. It's an application of the, of the knowledge and the evidence that we can gain. And exactly. That takes a little bit of critical thinking, right? Yeah. Well, that's, that's another hard one. <laughs> yeah. That's hard one to, to yeah. teach. It is. It's something hard to teach and it's, it, it's part of the development of what I think makes a good coach or a good clinician is, is that ability to put aside the things coming into you as being exactly what they are and reapplying them in a way that makes sense. That's going to benefit the individual that is in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, uh, you, some, uh, I'll give, I'll give you a funny story that I, that I, that I, um, that I remember I was having a discussion with, I, I don't know if it was a student or a, or, or a PT, I forget. But anyway, I think the study was showing something about how, um, the there was an effect on knee pain with some sort of injection and that was it that was all they quoted they said to me that there's an effect of this injection on knee pain and that's why i'm going to give it to the athletes that the athletes that i train and i i asked him what's the paper and he said he sent it to me and the trial was conducted on all females who were 55 and above and who had knee pain. And I looked at him and I said, your athlete's like 25 years old. It, 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 this potentially doesn't, does not apply to that person. And he said, nah, but if it worked for them, it should work for the other person. And at that point, I think you cut the conversation because it's, that's a level of critical thinking that, it needs to be developed, hopefully, hopefully. Um, but that's what I mean with using the evidence in, you've got to critically analyze the evidence and use it for whatever, whoever's in front of you. You can't use 50, 50 year old sample size and apply it to a 25 year old thinking that it'll work because it worked for the 50 year old. Yeah. And I think that's another great point that I wanted to touch on with you as well is the individual. So, you know, we obviously have certain things that carry over and work within populations, but how do we structure what we're doing uh, for an individual? So do you want to take us through your process a little bit of trying to understand who is in front of you from both a physical standpoint and, and I guess based on history and, and things like that as well? Yep. Well, that's a lot, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Pretty um, question. Do you want to start with the sort of, if somebody new comes to you, what's your yeah. sort of first step of, of getting to understand that person? Huh. Well, I'll, I'll go first with the physical, the physical goals, I guess. So when somebody first approaches, approaches me, uh, I'm, I'm consciously doing one thing and then I'll, I'll kind of re I'll tell you what I do afterwards. So the first thing I do is I ask them, what is it that you're after? And they'll tell you usually. 
and then I'll ask about what they know about the certain subject, what they hope to get from me, and in the long term, what is it that, how do you see this fitting into your lifestyle? So that's usually the first few questions I ask. And then from there, I dissect the time commitment that they want to do, uh, any knowledge gaps that they have, and any barriers conducive to their goal. That's just on the physical side. After I get all, after I get all that, then I start asking the, uh, how important this is to you. Because there's varying importances on the specific goal, right? So then if it's not that important, then I probably won't ask further probing questions that show me how important it is for that person. But if it's just, if it is important, then, I'll, then I will ask more questions because I don't really know how seriously they are taking their goal until I ask those questions. Anyway, so th that's the physical side. Then I'll go into the social side. I'll ask them about their time commitments, their work, their job, um, their, their social circle, what they, do, what, what they like to do for fun. And I, I do it in a way that I'm not intruding on their life, but I'm just getting some sort of snippets of their, their life so I can formulate a plan. Um, and, then I, and then I approach the psychological side, not, real, not really from asking any questions, but more just from observing their language their verbal language, their body language. And then from there, I go straight into designing a plan that I think will suit them. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, understanding their buy-in based on how important something is will obviously dictate sort of the amount of work and the, the difficulty of the work you're going to give them, I, I, I'd assume. Yeah. So if I get someone who is very, very, uh, I, I can tell that they're really serious about their goal and some of it, sometimes it's just for no other reason than they're just a serious person. Um, and sometimes it's because there's something traumatic or foundationally important to them, really, really important to them that they take it so seriously. Sometimes they share, sometimes they don't, but you can kind of pick these things. Um, and depending on the answer that I get, I will elaborate more further onto their goal and what it's going to take. If it's a shallow answer, then I'll give, I'll give just a shallow reply as well. Yeah. So because like if it's a shallow answer, like why would you go any deeper? They don't really, they don't really care. They just want you to get, get on with it really. Yeah. You need to reflect what they're after, I guess. Um, before you talked about when the athlete comes to you and, and with your athletic background, whether or not you want to admit you were one or not, um, you understand the work that it takes to get there. So how do you go about dealing with someone who says that they want to qualify for, you know, the national championships in weightlifting, whatever it is, but based on your questioning, they don't really show the desire or, or the willingness to do the work that you think it'll take. I've actually had this conversation before as in two with the person. Um, I, I go straight down the line because uh, high performance is not a joke. It's, it, it is all consuming. It is literally your life until you achieve that goal or you don't achieve that goal. And unless you're willing to face that, it's face the seriousness of that journey, then you probably shouldn't do it. Like, um, I'll give you an example. One of my friends, Yannick, he, he, when he was 15, he went to 
Malta to play for the national team at 15 years old. He ditched school, he ditched everything. He went there by himself at 15 to trial for the Maltese national team. That action in itself shows how serious he is, right? You're 15 years old and you ditch your family, you ditch school, you ditch everything, and you go and trial for that team. And he made it, by the way, but he got injured, unfortunately. So that's, a, that's amazing to me. And that shows the level of commitment. That's the level of commitment that you need for high performance. Now, I'll, I'll take it back to uh, one person that I did, did work with. I, I, I told them right from the beginning, if you want to make it, here's what you got to get right. Your sleep, your training, and your food. On the most basic level, you have to fit all of these things. Sleep, you probably need at least seven hours. As you train harder, you're probably going to get at least seven and a half, eight hours. You need that. If you don't get that, as talented as you are, I don't think you're that good that you can compensate for your lack of sleep with how talented you are. Anyway, and this is where the questions start. Over time, I would constantly ask them, how much sleep are you getting? And it'd be about four or five hours. And at that point, after three or four times, you know, you, you have to evaluate why that keeps happening. And the answer that kept coming back to me was other commitments, work, uh, social stuff. And that, those behaviors, uh, what I have to pick apart for them if they take it seriously. If you want to get seven hours of sleep, you probably can't go out as much as you want to. You probably need a new job then if, you, if your job's the only one that is, if, if your job is the one that consistently is the barrier to your sleep, then you probably need a new job or you need to change your hours. And of course, the answer is then, yeah, but I need the money for my financial commitments. Uh, I, that's, and then at that point, I would say, that's true. You do need those commitments. So either you reduce your financial commitments or you change your job. Because if you say that your, if you say that your sporting career is a number one goal on your mind, then everything else should take priority over that. Uh, everything else should be second to that or third or fourth. And if that is not the case and your and you, but you say it is, but that's not the case and your actions show that it is not the case, then you need to reevaluate your goals and understand that potentially this actually isn't as important to you than you think it is because your actions speak louder than your words, right? You're spending more time on other things than you are on your goal. And after you have that conversation, if nothing changes, then it's just a matter of, well, I've done my part. I've laid it out for you. And if you continue on this road, most likely what's going to happen is you don't reach that goal. Uh, a tough conversation, I'm sure, but a necessary one. Um, I think I see it too often where coaches and, and other people in the industry will I guess sort of inflate people. Um, and I guess going back to what you're talking about with the physios and the manual therapy, perhaps is a bit of a business tool. Um, but I think everyone gets done a disservice then. The individual loses out because they don't get to where they want to get because they were made to believe that they could regardless, just because like you said, maybe they had some talent or whatever it is, but there's a certain amount of work that needs to be put in to achieve results. And if the athlete doesn't understand that, I don't think we've done our job as, as coaches or professionals. Exactly. Exactly. And it is a, it is a tough conversation and it's not, it's probably something that people, the athletes don't want to hear, but you know what? 
Look at Kobe Bryant. Look at look at his shit, man. He is he's like the epitome of professionalism and just mental fortitude as it comes. One of my favorite parts in his when some of his interviews is when he talks about how often he would train. He'd always make sure he trained two hours more than anyone else. Something like that. And that that's that's pretty much what you gotta be. You got to, you can train smart, eat good, all that stuff, but you, you have to put in that work. And and I agree with him when he says that when you choose this lifestyle, you don't get those holidays, you don't get those good times, you don't get those those uh, relax relaxation periods because you just don't. If you do, your your performance will decrease, and that puts you behind all the competitors who you want to beat in order for you to get to that stage you want to be. And people, I I don't think people accept that. Uh, and I don't people accept that you can't have it all as an athlete. It's glorified a lot. When you get to the end, you get to uh, Australian team or you get, you get into a big fight or you get into uh, a rep team, whatever it is, people don't accept that once you get there in order to get there, there's a lot of sacrifice that needs to be made. And once you get there, the sacrifices have to continue. And unless you're ready to, unless you're ready to embrace that, then the high performance life is probably not for you. Yeah, and you hear stories time and time again of top athletes, and they're the ones that are first to training. They're the ones that are last to training. And they're doing the work that that takes it, and it's our job as coaches to to remind them and and facilitate that in a way that is going to be like you said, smart training. So just on that, and also going back to something you said before about managing workloads. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you one track workloads uh, and different ways you sort of manage the progression of that? So make sure that you are maximizing what you're getting out of your training, but of course we don't want to push too far and push ourselves into injury. Yeah, I'm pretty conservative with my programs. I would rather underload than overload because the way I see it, if I underload you, I can always progress you. If I overload you, then I don't know how long it's going to take in order for you to come back to normal. Um, how I track it. So with, with my stuff, I think it's pretty easy because uh, everything's on a spreadsheet. I go with the sets and their reps multiplied by their percentage or whatever kilos they lifted. So I guess it's like a tonnage based, a tonnage based uh, system. And I make sure that uh, I count how many reps they did for the squat pattern. So front squat, back squat, I consider that the same pattern. I make sure I have the absolute reps. I make sure I have the absolute reps for their deadlifts, their snatches, their pin and jerks. And when I have that, I modulate how much, oh, sorry. I modulate how much they increase or decrease by depending on their cycle. So if it's, if it's a volume block, I will increase their total volume by roughly 10 to 15% for the next four weeks. And then if they come out of that and then not, there's nothing going on with them, then I'll increase it, increase it again based off that previous cycle. If it's a competition block, I'll reduce it by about 20%, but I'll increase the intensity. And that's pretty much a pattern that I use. So far, I would say that uh, my guys, uh, they're failing their lifts which is good in my opinion, because I'm reaching a threshold that they're near their top, but no, no one's getting injured. So I know I'm, I'm in, I'm in that fine line between 
performance and performance and injury. Yeah, and that's that's where we want to be, right? Because that's where you're able to maximize. Um, so you're not leaving too much on the table, but you slowly built your way up there. I think a lot of approaches, especially from more like uh, people that come straight into the strength conditioning and maybe don't have an understanding of of rehab protocols and things like that, might usually go towards more of the overload uh, limit as opposed to starting with underloading um, and building up. And I think that's a lot around trying to make sessions hard, trying to make the athlete feel like you're, you're doing great work for them by pushing them to their limit all the time. Cause you know, that's what the culture of sport is. But I think it's important to, to come away from that a little bit sometimes and, and understand that, like you said, it's easier to add load than to have to deload them and then rebuild them. Yeah. Once, I mean, if something tears, you're in for a, you're in for a, a really tedious process. Yeah, and just on that, I think that there's a there's a shift in the movement space anyway to overly, overly, overly optimistic and positive. And I let me explain myself. Um, not everyone's going to get better to the point where they were before they had the injury, and that's just the fact, right? It, it, we have we have research that shows, regardless of whether you have an ACL reconstruction or not, within, I think, 10 or 15 years, you're going to get arthritis in your knee. And that's like, that, that evidence is overwhelmingly abundant, apparently. That's what we learned. doesn't matter. You're going to get osteoarthritis in your knee. So there's one very one brief snapshot of how as good as your rehab can be, it's not sunshine roses and daisies at the end of the tunnel there are some people who do not get better and i've seen i've seen these people there are some people who will get worse but there are people who get better are they going to be the same as what they were before let's look at something that is you just use acls again if you have a hamstring graft you can probably be just as strong in your hamstring rehab but it doesn't change the fact that you've lost part of your hamstring to be, to be a graft, right? You're not the same anymore. And that's, that's a fair, that's a fair statement to make. You've cut out your tendon and put it in your AC. It's not the same. And so stop telling people that they're not the same. They're, they're going to be the same because the truth is they might not be, you don't know. And look, look at the rates of ACL retails as well. It's, it's, there's a shift towards overly, op overly optimistic, and not giving the the patient the the whole the whole picture of what their rehab looks like. Same thing as rotator cuff tears. I worked in rotator cuff rehab and surgery. Um, and some get better, but some don't. Some after a year, they're still complaining about pain. And you could argue that okay, maybe the rehab wasn't good. Maybe all of this was bad. Maybe it, sure, maybe that's 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 the case. But it doesn't change the fact that there are a lot of people who don't have that who don't get to the stage where they want it to be. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air hearing something like that because it is, it's all sunshine and rainbows. It's now we'll get you stronger. We know all these exercises. We, we, you know, we understand exercise and the body so well that, yeah, we'll get you back to performing, but the realistic, you know, approach to it is, well, you know, things are going to be different. 
it doesn't mean you can't do things and you can't come back and perhaps still perform well, but there's things need to change uh, potentially. And there might be, you know, a loss, a loss in performance. If you have someone who's like a very elastic athlete and they snap a tendon, that tendon might not ever get its elasticity back. You snap an Achilles tendon as a basketball player, it might heal and you might be able to run and jump again, but you're probably not running and jumping as fast. That's true. That's true. And that this, these are just things that need to, be, need to be shared with people. Because one, I mean, the argument against that is, yeah, well, what else can they focus on if they're not being positive? It's like, yeah, that's, I, I, I agree with you in, in that mindset. I'm not saying that you should share this to people and say, don't try. All I'm saying is give them the whole picture so that they understand that if they don't get to where they want to be at the end, that's probably perfectly normal. And the second thing is, it actually, if you accept that you got to work really, really hard to potentially get back to where you were, then it makes you take your rehab more seriously and it makes you take your prehab more seriously because if you think that after you injure yourself, you potentially won't be the same again, then you probably don't want to injure yourself. But if you think that if I injure myself and I rehab, I'll be back to normal, then you give yourself that, that, bit, of a, that bit of a mental leeway Hmm. Yeah, it, it can. It can be a strong motivator in itself. And it can be a demotivator having the opposite opinion, thinking you're going to be better, but then all of a sudden, like you're not getting there. So we need to yeah. be careful with the language you use around around the injuries, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think just training in general, the language needs to change. The language is, the language is very, it's very, let's smash this, let's do it, let's, it's very, it's, it, it, it's, it's the opposite of negative. It's too, I mean, it's, it's overly positive. They can be overly negative, but we should keep it just as objective as we can. There's a difference between trying to encourage people and just feeding them validation in order for them to feel good about themselves. Yeah. Um, Cool. So going back into a little bit more of the, the sort of practical stuff that we can use as well. You, know, you talked about rehab, prehab there. I see a trend with the prehab. It's, it kind of goes one or two ways. Some people say it's a complete waste of time. We shouldn't use it at all. And other people are spending 75 minutes on their prehab. And you know, by the time they get to the session, they've got nothing left. How do you think we can sort of best incorporate prehab? And what are some principles that you follow when prescribing, especially coming with your, your physiotherapy background? Uh, your prehab needs to have a purpose. So your prehab should be specifically for something. For example, if you know that you have, when you're cold, your end range shoulder flexion is about 170. But when you're warm, your end range shoulder flexion is about, is about 180. And you need that range, that 180 range, then your prehab exercises should reflect that, right? It should, it should put you into shoulder flexion and get you up to 180. And the moment you get there, that's when you should start doing your sport. So it's not, it's not time dependent, it's just outcome dependent. If your hip flexion when you're cold is 80, 90 degrees, but then you need to be at 100 and you know you have 100 and your prehab exercises can get you there within five minutes, then five minutes is really all you, all you need in order for you to get there. It has to be outcome dependent. What you do 
has to have a purpose. It should show immediately that you get the outcome that you want and then just go straight into the movement that you want to do or your general warm up, whatever it may be. But do what you do, see the change and go for it. So there's a specific intention behind each thing. It's not, I'm squatting, so I need to do ankles. Well, if your ankles don't need it, you probably don't need to spend the time on it. You said you could spend it on you know, something that is, like you said, uh, more dependent for that individual. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Don't so, waste the time on doing things just because for the sake of doing things. Yeah. Sometimes you feel your hips are tight, then spend more time warming up your hips. That's yeah. as simple as it gets. Yeah, and you see it a lot in, in the movement space. It's, you know, fundamentals and prerequisites. And, and, you know, you have to do these three wrist rolls before you do this exercise. But why? We, there's no evidence that shows that that's right. Have you tried doing the other option where you don't do that? Is it still okay? And I think we're, we're always too quick to just go with what's being done. And yeah. that's what we are talking about before, before in regards to critical thinking as well. Yeah, let me tell you a story about Manara B, who is he was my roomie at Com Games. This guy defied everything that comes with physiology. He slept about two hours every two days. Two hours every two days. That's one. That's that's crazy, right? He never drank water. He only drank orange juice. Um, he never trained either, and he'd never back squatted. On his first day of back squatting, this was in the Commonwealth Games training hall. He hadn't done a back squat for years until this one day. He put 185 on the bar and he squatted it like nothing. Goes like 60, at 61 kilos. It goes against everything that we know. He was, pro, he, by, every, by every measure, he was deconditioned, not healthy, uh, underslept, undercaloried. Everything was just bad but you know what the guy did a 185 back squat and when i ask him what's your training like he just says uh i don't really train i save i save my luck for the competition hall i guess and that's it some absolute freak athletes out there he's a freak he's an he's an absolute freak but i use him as an example because as much as we have all this stuff that shows do your hip warm-up shoulder warm-ups back warm-ups there are people who do not do any of that stuff and are fucking phenomenal, phenomenal athletes. I, I saw kids in China do ballistic stretching as they warm up, which is advised against, right? Over here, it says ballistic stretching is advised against because you can snap a tendon. I don't think so. These guys were doing bouncing. They were spinning their lumbar spines around, doing everything. Their warm up was about two minutes. Next thing you know, they're cleaning and jerking 130, 135 at 15 years old. Yeah. Okay, figure, right? What, uh, how effective is the stuff that we're doing? Yeah, how effective and, and how, how important in general is it? Is it? I think, I guess the situation we need to look at is a lot of people put themselves in circumstances where they become super deconditioned to specific movements. And like you said, we then have a needs-based prehab to help address that. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit a little bit about a physical assessment that you might run with somebody who comes to see you. Uh, they want to be an athlete. How are you going to determine what those things are as they prehab? I see. Uh, so I have two screens. I have the movement screen. This is for weightlifters only. I have the movement screen and then I have the performance screen. So in the movement screen, it's really simple. I like to see their squat depth. 
in particular how deep they go and also the neutrality of their spine. So I know there's evidence against there's evidence that the butt wink isn't that bad, except my my idea is the more weight you put on, the less the higher risk your butt wink becomes. Body weight, no one cares. Maybe even half your body weight, no one cares. But then when it's like double body weight, super body weight, when you're doing those loads, that's when the butt wink can potentially matter a lot. Anyway, so I look for their butt wink. I look for their how deep they can go. Um, and the second thing I look for is their shoulder flexion. So weightlifting is a overhead sport. And in order for you to secure the bar in a comfortable position, it's usually arranged between the spine of your scap and just the base of your base of your skull. So you have you have we do have a have a have an a range of where you want to be. If you do not have active flexion to that range, open chain, then you most likely do not have that range in closed chain when you have a bar. So then look at that. And if they don't have that, I'll do some modification procedures. And if it works, that becomes a prehab exercise. If it doesn't, then you just got to hammer something else for me until we see that change in range. And once you do, then we can start moving on to the, to the full movements. Yeah, so very specific to, to the individual needs there. Uh, as an athlete, yeah. it's like, can you achieve what you need to achieve in the sport? So it's, can we get to the position? And then can you get to that same position while it's loaded? And then can you perform it in the sport? Pretty much, pretty much. And, that's just, and I think that's where pre-screens are, uh, are most effective. I know there's, I think there's some literature that shows pre-screens by themselves aren't very useful for predicting injury and all that. And I, I can see, I can see why that is. Um, but I think the more specific that pre-screen is for that individual sport, you potentially might see increased effectiveness. Because, I mean, I see it all the time. You and I see it all the time. When you have somebody who has a hip in a, a, a hip structure that, is that favors a wider hip stance, wider leg stance. If you get someone to squat narrow, they're just impinging their hip the whole time, right? And if you get someone to constantly do that, they're going to start having hip impingement problems. So in context of a study, you would say that if I screen this person and I had equated the volume, but I made them squat into a width and depth that was not impinging their hip all the time, you, they probably wouldn't have that hip um, impingement pain. And, and that's where the screens become very, very useful. Like it's, it's, it's pretty simple when you get someone with hip pain and you widen their stance and then they're not in pain anymore and the butt wink's gone. Everything improves objectively when you do that. So if you can apply that before they're injured, then like everyone's winning. Yeah, and I think it's even important to look at the screens from beyond just an injury. What about performance and optimization? I think one of the biggest ones that gets sort of bagged out a little bit is the FMS because um, the evidence just really doesn't support its use as a, an injury predictor. But I've used it many times because like you said, it gives me that information beforehand. I now know that they're going to be a more efficient squatter out here. They might be able to lift more weight because once you adjust their foot position or, or the, their ankle position or whatever it is, you're able to achieve the outcomes that you want without having to force and stumble and, and guess your way through. And that's, I guess, the real essence of what it is. It eliminates a bit of the guesswork. Yeah. 
if you don't if you don't assess you really you really are just guessing and hoping for the best so yeah it's really it's uh, it's it's a uh, underappreciated potentially an underappreciated um tool yeah um we're getting towards the end of our time but i just wanted to uh... know it's devastating um just a big one that I think is going to be really important. So one last important question, and then we'll go into a, a bit more of a fun one to finish. But what do you think some of the main things that people in the industry, strength conditioning professionals and, and trainers alike can do to help reduce the risk of injury? I know there's obviously many, many factors to that, but what are some quick things that you think will make a big difference? Get your guy to sleep more. Yeah. No, number one, there's a, there's, a, there's a study in, I think, high school collegiate athletes in the US that showed that the number one predictor of injury was um, the hours that they slept. It wasn't the warm-up. It wasn't, it wasn't the strength and conditioning. It wasn't anything. It was just the amount of hours that they slept. So if your guy is sleeping less than seven and a half, eight hours, they're not going to even perform well in the long run. But another reason why you should get them to do it is because um they have higher injury risk if they don't that's the first one uh the second one is plan plan most of your training around moderate probably plan most of your training around moderate intensity until you need to get them to peak for something high performance you you don't need to get someone to you don't need to smash your athlete all the time it's, it's, it's not, it's, there's no longevity there. Your athlete will drop out, will burn out before, before they get the adaptations that they want. You can't go crazy for their internal load, sorry. Yeah, you can't get them to work really hard, what they perceive to be really, really hard all the time. And the third one is just listen. Listen to your client. If your client says to you, you know what, today I'm really tired, I feel slow, I don't have my appetite, all, all these things, take note of it. I think that's a very, uh, very clear sign that they need rest. Yeah. I think there's, there's some really, uh, some real gold there and we've too, we might be too busy focusing on the one percenters and, you know, should we be doing this shoulder rotate, rotate a cuff exercise, but we're not looking at sleep and we're not exactly, we're not listening to the things that they're saying. Their athlete knows themselves best. And as professionals, we need to begin to trust them. Um, and trust what they're saying and take it on board always with a grain of salt but i think it's it's important to take that information on board yeah it's the one percent is important look don't get me wrong the one percent is important but you got to make sure the other 90 other 99 is done first yeah so even 80 yeah all right and last question before we uh call it a day if you had to speak to your younger self the guy who's just getting into the industry what was one piece of advice you would give them? Get out. No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, what would I say to myself in the industry? Uh, hmm, that's a good one. What would I say in the industry as a PT or a physio? Um, PT. PT. Hmm. What have I learned? What am I really good at now that uh, I think I would have said to my younger self when you first started that 
there's something that you're really good at that you don't even know you're good at yet and don't deviate from that and for me it was actually a funny funny you brought this up because i had this conversation with with another pt i didn't realize how good i was at observing movement until somebody pointed it out to me that i see things that no one else sees so i always thought that it was just something that people had right i thought every pt could see what i could see but that's not the truth when there are things that i was bad at like acknowledging people's feelings uh, when i was younger my clients would be telling me their feelings and i'd be like ah yeah too much too much i don't want to i don't want to listen to your disordered eating um excuses and how you don't want to eat that cake and feel guilty about it i don't want to hear any of that because i don't even know what it was but there's something but no i i had things i was good at that i didn't know i was and i had things that were bad i was bad at that i didn't know i was bad at so i would that's what i would say to myself there are things you are good at don't deviate from that and there are things that you are really bad at and you need to improve on that too i think that's a really good take-home message is you know take a look at at how you do things evaluate yourself get your your peers and, and mentors to evaluate you and and work on the things you need to work on and double down on the things you're good at. I think that's a, a really great way to, to finish off there. What about you? Are well, you got to answer as well? Oh, no, I don't have to answer. I'm, I'm the host of the show. I was bullshit. I'm not coming back then. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about just uh, where we can find you quickly? Uh, if people wanted to get in contact or find out a little bit more about your work and, and your approach to, to things there. Uh, if you want to contact me, the best place to do it would be on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is just at philip.lao, P-H-I-L-L-I-P dot L-I-A-O. That's actually just my name. Um, and that's it, really. I pretty much share everything that I do over there. If you have any specific questions, just send me a message. Um, and yeah, that's it. Reach us, Dan. Dan, Dan. Dan, you can get in contact with me as well. Yeah, I'll put, I'll put Phil's details and his, his uh, contacts in the show notes. Uh, Phil, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your wisdom and and the things that you can uh, you bring to the industry. And I think a lot of other people can take some take some advice from that. Oh, thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure being on episode one. <laughs>